The following message is from the 2012 IBCD Summer Institute, Changed by Grace. So I, um, it was actually my idea to, uh, to, do, this, to do this seminar, um, but I, I don't think about myself as being a writer, which is kind of funny because I've <laughs> written 17 books, but um, I, I wanted, I know that there are a lot of people and I'm contacted very frequently, very frequently, um, by people who want, there's room here, my sweet, who want, um, want my help with their manuscript or, you know, how to get published and all that sort of business. So I thought, well, I think what I'll do is I'll, I'll do a seminar and then when people ask me, I'll tell them to download it. <laughs> <laughs> So this is actually more about me than you. Um, well, actually, everything in my life is more about me than you, so that's normal. I um, want to talk to you a little bit, and, and you'll see where I'm going to go with this. Uh, Ephesians 4.29 says, Let no corrupting word come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it might give grace to those who hear. And... What I want to just, and, I, and I'm going to do something I tell people not to do, I just want to pull out of that verse just this thought of giving grace to people who hear you or read your writing. And um, that's the point. The point of your writing, and I'm assuming that if you're in here, uh, you probably would like to at some point be published or at least write a blog or you're thinking about it. And so I'm just going to really encourage you that there that there is a goal in your writing besides just sort of telling people about yourself. Uh, the goal is to benefit people who hear you. That's what that give grace means. It means to benefit the people who hear you or read you. And, you know, when you're asking somebody to read you, it's, it's more than what we're doing here right now. I'm asking you for an hour, and you're giving me an hour, and I want to honor what you are giving to me. But when you're writing, you're asking someone to give, them, to give you hours and hours and hours of their time. And our obligation as believers is to give something that will benefit. Yes? And not just our own experiences, although that's, of course, appropriate. This is a lovely little quote. I just pulled it off a, out of Tim Keller's um, beautiful book, The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. Very short, nice little, um, maybe hour read or so. Wonderful book. self And just, just look at what he does, how he benefits you. And you don't even need to know everything that went before this and everything that he has to say. Just, just look at what he does. Self-forgetfulness takes you out of the courtroom, and he's talking about being in the courtroom of your own opinion of yourself. Okay? So self-forgetfulness takes you out of the courtroom. The trial is over. The verdict is in. Perhaps that is new. Keep looking. Keep digging. We have to relive the gospel on the spot and ask ourselves what we're doing in the courtroom. I mean, isn't that beautiful? Just those, just two sentences, and he's already bringing you into grace, bringing you into all the benefits of uh, what Christ has done. We should not be there. The court is adjourned. Like Paul, we can say, I don't care what you think. I don't even care what I think. I only care about what the Lord thinks, and he has said, therefore there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, and you are my beloved child, and here I am well pleased. Live out of that. Now, didn't that just benefit you? Yes. I mean, what's, is, I mean just pulled it right out of the end of his book. That is what we need to do. Now, of course, none of us are Tim Keller. Um, but that's the point I'm trying to make. Your writing, when you, when you write something, and particularly for publication, we'll talk about blogs in a minute, but when you're writing for publication, what you're saying is, when I pick up this book, which is my favorite book, my favorite fiction book, and it has... It, yeah, is chocolate. Um, <laughs> over 1,200 pages. Victor Hugo was saying to me, give me a couple of months of your life, and I'll make it worth your while. You see? So when you're, when you're writing, it's not just you 
putting something out there. You're saying, I want something from you. And you can trust me with your life. That sort of kicks it into a different category, doesn't it? Um, so, uh, first of all, a confession. I do not think of myself as a writer. Um, I, uh, I actually, when I was in school and the little bit of college that I did before I became a believer and went to Bible college, um, I thought of more of myself as an artist. And I took like um, advanced art classes and all of that sort of business. I never really thought of myself as a writer. The way I think of myself as a counselor that wishes that there were certain books out there. And that was really the genesis of my writing career. The genesis of my writing career was in about 1995, uh, there were no books written by women on biblical counseling. It just wasn't there. And really all that was there was um, books written by males, primarily Jay Adams and Wayne Mack, on biblical counseling. And as a woman who was doing counseling with other women, I, I, I saw that there was this vacuum there. And, and I wanted to I wanted to be able to help women. And so that's what I see myself as. I'm not a writer. I have friends who I think they are. That's a writer. I'm not a writer. Even so, God has um, blessed me, and, I've, and I have 17 books in print um, since 1997 when the first one came out. Now that tells you a little bit of something about my process, which is I'm a very fast writer, and I'm probably not a very deep writer. There are people, uh, my friend Nancy DeMoss, she agonizes for hours over every single word. I don't do that. It makes me nuts. You know, It's not my style. It's not me. And that's probably why she sold 12 million books, and I haven't. But at least everything is, you know, everything is still in print. You can get published, and if you don't sell enough books, your publisher will pull your book. All right, so... Um, and, and a book that sells well is a book that sells between five and 6,000 copies a year. Now, let me just tell you something. None of you in this room are going to get rich writing. If you, if you write a book and it actually gets published, you'll get a, a, between 40 and 60 cents a copy. Okay? So, you know, you better have another job. <laughs> or someone to support you, like I have. All right. The problem, of course, these days is that the Internet has made everyone a writer. Now a personal journey or a diary, which every sixth-grade girl always had, is fodder for global consumption. And, it's, and uh, most of what's on the Internet is really pretty awful, writing-wise. For instance, I bought a new shampoo today that I'm really excited about. I hope it works good. I love the citrus cherry smell. It reminds me of orange trees and how Christ has cleansed me with wonderful suds from the tree of the cross. Really? Okay. I actually just made that up. But it's, it's not that far away, is it? Is it? So we want to be really careful, particularly as Christian writers, because what we're doing is for global consumption... You know, now I used to maybe share my diary with my girlfriend. Now I'm sharing my diary, if you will, with everyone in the world. I was just at a Gospel Coalition for Women conference, and they were streaming the conferences, the sessions. 30,000 people all at once watching. So we want to be really careful with what we're putting out there now, particularly if our website says anything about God or Jesus or anything like that, besides, you know, your new shampoo. We want to be careful about spiritualizing the trivial. Um, and that's not to say, you know, you can't make analogs. You just want to be careful. Uh, this is something, this is a little chirkle that actually I pulled off the web this morning. The Lord is amazing, and he's led me to a book titled... Give them grace, dazzling your kids with the love of Jesus. This book was recommended to me by over half a dozen godly veteran parents, whatever that means. My book arrived yesterday, and I dung into it. Okay, let me just say, <laughs> read your stuff before you put a post it, okay, and have someone else read it. Because you'll read something that's not there. She undoubtedly read this, 
But, and if you're in this room and you wrote it, I'm really sorry. <laughs> she undoubtedly read it. And her, and her brain put the word Doug there. And my spirit was encouraged and blown away by the wisdom and truth found just in the foreword. Why is that in quotes? I don't know. If that wasn't a bucket of truth to feast on, I don't know what is. See, wasn't and is don't match. Right? If that isn't, I don't know what is. Or if it wasn't, I don't know what was. Right? But not wasn't and is. Because that's like, you know, I'm not an English teacher, but... Uh, now, here's something that makes me absolutely crazy. I'll tell you that the first book I ever wrote, um, Women Helping Women, I tried to write that, a whole nother. Because I was thinking, you know, another whole, or an entire other. And I kept trying to write a whole nother, and it kept coming back. Like, no, that's... And by the way, you need to have a good spell check program, because it stopped me from a whole nother. And then, this is something we're doing these days, and this isn't going to be an English lesson, but this is something we're doing these days since, since feminism. Uh, we no longer use masculine pronouns. We, never, we no longer assume masculine pronouns. And it is now considered proper English to say, one student failed their exam. What we would have said 20 years ago is one student failed his exam because we use net masculine pronouns for indiscriminate um, persons, unless you said Elise failed her exam, right? Now you either have to say, one student, student failed their exam, which is, seems silly to me, or, then, or specify the girl failed her exam. Or, so you get that? I mean, there's just this sort of stuff that happens all the time. Most of us are terrible grammarians. I mean, you know, I, I went to school, I, I graduated. <laughs> I used to not know how to spell Arthur, now I are one. You know? Um, <laughs> you, you learn. So there's a wonderful website, and, and, the, and the man who oversees the website is actually, he's in process with a book, so he's not posting all the time, but his blog is called Write Badly Well. And, and it has on it all sorts of things that um, amateur writers do that are, that are really bad. Uh, for, for instance, just get rid of similes in your writing. You're not going to be good enough to do a good simile, so just forget it. Susan stepped out into the busy road like a country lane, causing traffic to screech to a halt like nails on a blackboard. She stood for a moment, letting the wind whistle past her like a wind chime, and the silence Fill her ears like shells. Get out of the road, yelled an obese taxi driver like a sack of blubber. <laughs> Susan paid him no attention. She was calm, not letting her thoughts turn to panic like a still pond. Okay, you get this? Take that word like and just jettison it out of your writing. Because you're not going to be able to. I mean, unless you're a writer, you're, you're just not, you know. Get it? See, the, what is... Uh, when you, read, when you read those first two sentences, what did you say? I'm not going to read. This is garbage. This person doesn't know how to write. So you want to write crisply, concisely, and for a sixth grader. And as much as you want to write the next uh, deep theological tome that will be celebrated 500 years from now, um, just don't aim there. You are not Tolstoy, Austin, Camus, or Hugo. Okay? You're not. So don't try to be. Just, just you know, just write. And write in a way that you speak. You're not a Puritan and you're not writing to the Puritans. And that's a problem with people who are theologically uh, deep or who have read Puritans because they think they can write like Puritans. And my stuff which is not in any way uh, terribly deep. I have had so many people tell me, it's so hard to read your stuff. And I mean, I'm sp I'm, I, and I have a readability scale, and I'm trying to never write over eighth grade. And they tell me they don't understand. 
So, you know, this is the culture in which you live. And, you know, we would have all maybe been happier had we lived in the 16 or 1700s and we were able to write like then. But then again, they were writing with quill pens and they, you know, didn't have 400 tweets they had to answer. And, you know... Take the kids here and all, all of that. They didn't do that. They took, they took years to write a book. We don't do that anymore. And so that's not how we read. That's not how we write. Sit down and try to read um, Calvin's Institutes. I mean, it's beautiful. It's beautiful to, to read it. But, you know, it takes me, I sit down with the Institutes, and it takes me 45 minutes to get my brain down there. Do you know what I mean? Just so that I can actually process through. Um, If you want to write popularly, if you have a message that's going to get out, you want people to read your message, don't write for the Puritans. Um, Because they're not, you know, they're not going to read you. Um, Write like you talk so people will understand you. Not to be impressed by you. You know, and there's a balance needed here because on the other hand, I talk like a Southern Californian. I don't want to write the way I talk like a Southern Californian. On the other hand, I don't want to use flowery speech or try to draw all sorts of similes and all of this other kind of stuff. I want to, I want to write in a way that will communicate something of import to the person to whom I'm writing. Uh, just because we aren't trying to impress people doesn't mean that we should be sloppy, lazy writers. See, the writers of Scripture, read Romans 8 if you want to see some good writing. Beautiful, beautiful writing there. Um, we want to communicate truth beautifully. And this isn't to a sixth grader. This can, this can feed your heart. And then if you want to take something like this and just tweet, tweet this. It would seem as if Jesus loved to visit, visit the haunts of human woe. Now, that's a beautiful tweet. But see, that's how our culture thinks. Our culture thinks in tweets and sound bites. And if you're writing even a blog, if you haven't grabbed that person you're reading in the first 45 seconds, and that's about all you've got, because people are busy and they're tired and they really couldn't, you know, maybe it'll be good. 45 seconds, first two sentences, you've got to nail it or they're off to something else. That's the culture in which we live. This is beautiful. Perhaps to some whose woeful, whose tearful eye may glance on these pages, the most touching and endearing chapter in our Lord's life, a varied and affecting incident, is that which portrays him in Bethany's house of mourning and bending over the grave of Lazarus, thus illustrating his peculiar sympathy with the bereaved. It would seem as if Jesus loved to visit the haunts of human woe. Isn't that beautiful? Jesus loves to visit the haunts of human woe. So we want to give grace to those who hear. So writing is a skill. No, it's quite all right. It was a good song. It's a really good song. Okay, so, you know, let's just talk for, again, let me just try to be real practical here still. Uh, Writing is a skill, so you need to practice it all the time. Uh, There are some days when I'm writing, and I'm presently actually involved in two projects, um, and, um, and so I have to write now, but on the days when I'm not involved in projects, I need to write all the time. It's a skill. See, sometimes people think, well, writing is this gift, and then you just, it just flows from you. I will tell you, and I will show you books that you can look at, every writer who's worth their salt at all, they write every single day because it's a skill, and you have to keep doing it over and over again, and then go back a month later and read what you wrote. I mean, I go back a month later and read what I wrote, and I go, well, that was garbage, you know? Because like right at the moment, you think it's really wonderful. Um, You want to read good books all the time. And if I have time, I'm going to get to that with you. But you want to write all the time and you want to read all the time. All the time reading. So um, I have, you know, of course I have all all of my hard, real books. And then I have my iPad. And on my iPad, I carry around with me hundreds of books. All the time. All the time reading. 
all the time pressing into new fiction. And I'll talk to you about why you should read fiction, good fiction. But all the time reading. So writing all the time, reading all the time. You want to observe words and sentence structure. If a sentence sounds really beautiful, you want to think about what, what makes that, what made that sentence grab me? Listen to how they fit together or not. And then edit everything you he- read in here. And I know I make my husband crazy because I'm, I'm editing everything all the time. I can look at words for a him and go, where's the apostrophe? <laughs> okay, see, I, I, I am editing all the time. Editing, and forgive me if you talk to me and you'll think, she's <laughs> editing me. I am. I'm sorry. I just, I've been writing now for too long. Um, what else have I learned? Don't write for your peers. Okay, Don't write for your peers. Uh, they already know what you know. So don't write for them. Don't try to cover every possible eventuality and contingency. And that's something that new writers do all the time. All the time. Which is why on my f- cup, first couple of books, which were ha- published by Harvest House, I used to get back from my editor pages crossed out in red. Entire pages, just gone. Like, no. Um, Because I was always trying to say, well, I'm not saying this, but I'm saying this, but I'm not trying to say this, because I'm always anticipating what my peers might think I'm trying to say. Okay? You're not writing for your peers. Or you shouldn't be. Because they already know what you know. So you want to write for the person who has no idea what you're talking about. Um... Your word isn't the final word. Jesus is the final word. And I'll tell you what, that's really good news. So in your book, you don't have to have everything that needs to be said. Right? You don't have to have everything that needs to be said. Buy a good dictionary thesaurus and other helps. This thing, which is called the flip dictionary, have you ever seen this? This is a marvelous tool. And what you do with this, it's kind of a thesaurus, but... Not, but it's more than that because um, if you want to know what it means to be on an inclined plane on which ships are built, it's called a slip. Okay? So there, there's this wonderful book. It's called Flip Dictionary. So you can go to it and say, I, there's, this, there's this thing. And, uh, and that, by the way, was one of the first things that my, ed- my first editor ever said to me. He said, Elise, uh, writers don't usually word the, use the word thing. <laughs> it has to be more precise. Yes, yeah, so. Uh, incapable of being passed through. What's a word for that? impervious so you can say well it was incapable she was incapable of being passed through or you can say it's impervious this thing love this thing and as you can tell i use it all the time because i'll sit there and i'll and i'll know okay i know there's a word that says that in less than 10 words and i want my writing to be crisp and so i i i don't want to use 10 words if i can use one so that is the dictionary that will help you. And then you want to buy a program for your computer that will read your work aloud to you. That is a wonderful, wonderful thing to do because I will go through, and I'll tell you, just tell you in a couple minutes about my process, but by the time I get to the end of my process, I will assume that there are words there that are not actually there. Right? So I think that I put the word the in there, but it's not there. And I can read it three times, and my mind will supply the until I hear it with my eyes closed. And then I hear it. So buy a program. The one I have is called Natural Soft, and uh, it's not very pricey. It's less than $100, and it's completely worth its weight in gold. Um, it sounds like a it sounds like a robot to me, and I don't want to. I, I want to have a, a better voice. That's helpful for me. Um, but you can do that. So, what is my process? Well, my process is first of all, do I really have anything to say? 
I mean, that's a good question to ask. Do I have something to say that that actually might be worth somebody listening to? Besides, I bought a new shampoo, and it smells like oranges and cherries mixed together. Um, And my process, which is different than other people's processes. And this book, Writers on Writing and the Writing Life, there's a number of these books, Writers on Writing. They talk about people who are actually published and good and real writers they talk about what their process is. People have different processes. And so they talk about their processes. And it was actually really wonderful for me to read it because I found myself all over in them. Oh, they do that. Oh, that's why I do that. So people, so these are, are actually really good books to have. So what I do is called to me uh, just basically throwing up on a screen. And so what I do, and thank God for computers, because if I would have had to do it with a quill pen, I would have been in serious trouble. That's not my process. My process is I'll just sit down and basically free associate for four hours or something. Which, which I need to say something now about your time. You, it's impossible, at least it is for me, to sit down and try to write when all I have is 45 minutes. It, it's just utterly impossible. Uh, it takes me 45 minutes to calm down and get off the internet, quite frankly, right? So I need a, a lot of space. That's what I need in order to calm down and get my brain engaged. And then if I don't really know, I'm not really sure about where I'm going and, and the chapter I'm writing hasn't taken on its own life, which it eventually will do, and I've done it enough to know that it'll do that, I just sort of sit down and just write whatever comes into my mind. I just write it. And I've become, at this point now, a fast enough typist that I can just, I can almost, I can just almost do it as quickly as I'm thinking it. And I'm not, I don't care about grammar. I don't care about where is that verse found. I don't care about anything. At that point, I know that three quarters of what I'm writing is going to get thrown away. And all I want to do is just give me something to work with. So I just sit down and throw up on the screen. Then I edit. And editing is so much more, it's so much easier to do than to try to edit while you are creating. All right? So just sit down, just let it flow, pray, pray, pray. Sometimes I'll know I'm supposed to write on a certain topic, and I've already decided that's what the chapter is going to be like. And I sit down and I just say, Lord, I, I got nothing here. <laughs> I, I want to write about it, and I know kind of where I want to go, but I don't really know how I'm going to get there. And I just pray, and then I just start writing. And then I'll spend two or three or four or five hours doing that, and then I'll just let it sit and, and come back another day and edit. It's so much easier to edit than it is to create. And that's why, to my way of thinking, my friend Nancy, she tries to create and edit at the same time. And that I, I couldn't do that. It would make me crazy. So you want to get down to the kernel of your thought. You know, Tell me in one sentence what this 1,500-word blog is about. One sentence. Right? That's what you need to do. You need to be that. Get there. Get there. I can tell when I've fallen into the groove on a book because I can do that. I can say in one sentence or two sentences, this is what I'm writing about. Otherwise, you know, we're dancing all around the whole theological spectrum. Okay, so there's only one. And pray and pray and pray. And I'll just tell you, my own experience has been, I've sat there and stared at a computer and just said, Lord, you you have to help me. Please help me. And then I just start writing. And then out of that, out of hours of just writing, what I know is going to end up, much of it getting thrown away, there will be something there that I can take then and craft. Okay? So I know I'm going to throw it away. Don't ever get married to any of your words. Okay? So you just, because I'll tell you what, you may be married to them, but you're going to send them to your editor if you get an editor, and they're going to divorce you. So don't, don't get married to any of them. Just uh, um, let them stew and then come back to trim the fat, you know? Right? Just, yes. 
Exactly. Let it stew, <laughs> then, which is the problem. Well, all right. Thank you. <laughs> Let it stew, then, come back to trim the fat. Less is better, write your chapter, and then cut one-third out of it. When I sent off uh, Idols of the Heart, I thought it was, you know, and I had been sort of sending along chapters as I had been going, and they were like, yeah, 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 yeah. And so I send the final book in, and like a month later, after they read it, they say, cut 90 pages. Well, how do you do that? Well, you go through and you cut every third word. Um, Okay. So let me talk a little bit now just about getting published and that sort of business because I know a lot of you want to know. First of all, don't count on it. <laughs> don't try to make a living out of it and be sure you have a second income. Um, people, I, I think pe- everybody sort of tends to think that they, they have a book in them and that somebody wants to read it. <laughs> um, I'll tell you what publishers do. If they even accept unsolicited manuscripts, which many of them do not. They come in and, and they give them to X number of editors who all they, all they do all day long is edit people who are actually under contract. And if they ever end up with any kind of extra time, they'll go and just pick one up off the pile. And they have piles of them in their office. That's what happens to your manuscript. Okay? So I, I'm the sort of person, I'm too lazy to write unless I have a contract. So, um, I mean, I won't write unless I have a contract because I know where it's going to end up. And uh, one of the things that you're going to need to find out is, the pu- is will the publisher that you want to get published with, and I'll talk to you about that too, um, will they accept unsolicited manuscripts? Because a lot of them will not. You'll, will not and they'll send them, you'll send your manuscript to them and they won't even open it. They'll just send it back un- unopened. Because of the internet, you can uh, you can find out about that sort of stuff sort of more easily now than you used to be able to. Um, I because I've written 17 books and they are all in print, and because I have what is for Crossway their bestseller, give them grace. I am now how many years later? 20 years later, starting to get royalty checks that amount to something more than let's go out to dinner. Okay? There's just there's really no money in it unless you're Hillary Clinton or Tom Clancy. Just no money in it. And now with ebooks, mm-hmm. there's even less. Because they're charging less for the, your book now. And they charge less for your book, you get a percentage of the less they charge. So you're going to get I mean maybe maybe you'll get 20 cents on a book. So, you know, any kind of idea that you might have had about using your writing skills to become rich and famous, just trash that. Um, you want to, you know, when, when you're going to go talk now to, let's say you're going to talk to a publisher, you, you have some sort of a manuscript or an idea that you want to sell, you need to make yourself saleable. Because what they want to know is, aside from the fact, can you write and... Not only can you write, but um, do you have an idea for a book that hasn't been beaten to death already? So you want to make yourself saleable. So social media is really great for that. And people will go into a publisher and say, I have 5,000 people who follow my blog. That, a publisher will listen to you. Because in their mind, they're thinking, okay, well, I'm going to sell at least 2,000 books. And it makes it worth their while. So start a blog. And the deal with a blog is it should not be more than 1,000 words, 500 to 1,000 words. It has to be pithy. Do you know what I mean? Pithy, little, concise statements, one thought, one takeaway thought, Joe Blow sits down, reads your blog, gets a thought, goes off. It's not, you know, that's what you do with blogs. And if you have a blog following, um, a publisher may be interested in you. I'm going to talk just for one second about what's going on in publishing. Um, 
Amazon, as much as we love Amazon, has ruined the writing industry. Because Amazon can charge, because they, because they have such high volume, every publisher will publish with them even if they lose money or come close to losing money on their book sales. And what that means is that publishers don't have the money they used to have. And we used to have little Christian bookstores. Remember little Christian bookstores? Uh, we don't have them anymore. Pretty soon they, were all, they will all be gone. And the ma and pop stores, they're all gone. Because you can't compete with Amazon. So you can't, they can't compete with, oh, I want to, I just listened to this sermon by Tim Keller and he said I needed to read this book, Go to the Rock. And so I get on Amazon and I can one click it and it'll be here tomorrow. Who can, who can compete with that? And plus, I don't have to pay for shipping because I am on Amazon Prime and, and, I can, I can know that it's there and not have to go to a bookstore to get it, to hope that it's there. It has, as much as we love it, it has absolutely killed the publishing industry. Because now where they used to charge, let's say, $12 for a book to a bookstore, Amazon won't let them do it. So Amazon says, you know, you're going you're gonna to pay me, I'm going to pay $8 for that book. And I'm going to sell it for, for uh, $8.50. Amazon can do that because they're as huge as they are. So we love them, but they're a problem. Uh, magazine articles, you know, just write. Uh, peak, speak publicly as much as you have an opportunity. See, if you have, if you have a following, if you have a constituency, if you have a, a constituency, then they'll, they'll be interested in you. The question is, what makes you and your message unique? So you want to be giving grace, but then... What makes you unique? I mean, I, I don't mean to be unkind, but really, why would I want to read your story? I mean, what, what about your story is any different than any other story I've ever read? And since you can't write like Victor Hugo, I'd rather read his story. All right, and I'm not trying to discourage you. I'm just telling you, make yourself unique. You need a following because uh, be ready for rejection, rejection, and more rejection. Brett Lott wrote, and I don't know if you know who Brett Lott is, but Brett Lott is an uh, author who hit the big time because he made Oprah's book club list with a book entitled Jewel, which is a marvelous, marvelous book, beautiful book. Brett Lott was rejected for years, could not get a publisher. Finally got a publisher, Oprah saw him, and he's in the stratosphere. Um, your story may be interesting, at least to you, <laughs> but why would a publisher spend $100,000 on you? And that's what they're getting ready to spend. Now, not as much anymore because, because we have sort of instantaneous publication, so they don't have to print like they used to have to print a, a run of 10,000 copies. Bef you know, if they're going to publish you, they're going to print 10,000 copies, and then they're going to have a publicist who's going to be uh, taking care of doing your marketing, and then they're going to have an editor, and they're going to have an art department who is designing your covers, which, by the way, you don't get to say anything about. And, uh, and you're going to have an entitling committee, which they entitle your book, you don't. And so they're, they're getting ready to spend a significant amount of money on you. Why would they do that for you? That's, those are the questions you have to ask yourself to make yourself marketable. Uh, I know that people would want to hear my story. I mean, I've, I, I can't tell you, and I don't mean to be unkind, but, and Phil knows this is true, I can't go to a conference without somebody telling me that they have this wonderful manuscript and story and I really should read it. <laughs> if they can't get to you, they get to me. Yeah. I mean, it, uh, really, why? Um, we were just at the conference and I was there with uh, a bunch of the people from Crossway and uh, people were coming up to some of the editors from Crossway trying to give them manuscripts. They don't want your manuscript. They need to know who you are and you need to present yourself. Okay, this is a, this is a business. It's a business. 
And you have to market yourself. So pray for the opportunity to write about Jesus and his grace, not your story. Because you know what? All of our stories in the end are really pretty boring. (laughs) Um, So, some good resources. There is a book, and I don't know how much you need it anymore because I haven't really used it a lot lately because of the internet. But there is a book called The Writer's Market. Um, I used to have it. It's a book that costs $60. I have no idea where it went. (laughs) That is a book that tells you all of the publishers that are out there, whether or not they will accept unsolicited manuscripts, what they have to look like in order for them to accept them, who you contact. And uh, I think actually there's even a Christian writer's market. And so you want to go to the library don't, you don't need to buy this book, but you're going to need to do research to find out who might be willing to take your manuscript. She's fine, Laura. She's fine. I'm going to go feed him. Okay, or him. Thank you. Yes, I'm there. They're fine. <laughs> um, read books like The Writing Life. You know, just take some time. Look at, look at other, how other people do this, this process. And then read all the classics twice. The classics are called the classics because they're classic. And I want to say about 15 years ago, I think even before I started writing, I started reading the classics. I, you know, I, I was a, a really terrible student in school, and I don't know that I ever read a book. Um, I don't know how I graduated, but anyway. um, So you read all the classics, and you start with one country and read read everything from England, and then read everything from France, and read everything from Russia. Joel and I just shared um, The Death of Ivan Ilyich um, by Tolstoy. Marvelous little short story. 60 pages? Marvelous. Read the classics. They are ponderous. Some of them are. This is a classic, and it's not ponderous. It's a nice size. And it's called The Stranger by Albert Camus. Um, read, so start, you know, read, read Dickens, read Tolstoy, read Jane Austen, read Victor Hugo. I mean, just go through and read all of the great writers. Read the American writers. Americans write differently than the rest of the world. We're much more sort of out there and blunt. Um, you, want to, you want to read this all. I, I mean, first of all, it will enrich your soul. But secondly, it will make you a better writer when you see what they do. It's just astonishing. Here's C.S. Lewis. Now, there's a couple of books that I read every year. And... Somewhere. Here it is. This is my copy of Till We Have Faces. This is my favorite C.S. Lewis book. I read it every year. Um, it's, it, is a, it, it is not even any close, anywhere close to his most uh, known book. It was his favorite book as well. You know, go through and find out what was their favorite book. This is a very, it's a very odd book. But you're going to get to the end of it, and it's going to rock your world. Till We Have Faces. It's absolutely marvelous. It's so wonderful. First line, I am old now and have not much to fear from the anger of the gods. Isn't that a marvelous first line? Towards the end, I ended my first book with the words, No answer. I know now, Lord, why you utter no answer. You yourself are the answer. Now, isn't that, look at that sentence. Look at that sentence. In how many words are there? Maybe 20 words. In what he did just then, in that, those 20 words, is he just went... <clears throat> is that powerful? It's powerful, beautiful writing. So there's Lewis for you. I mean, you've got you to read all of Lewis. You have to read everything that the Inklings wrote. So that's Lewis and Muggeridge and Tolkien, and Dorothy Sayers, and Charles Williams. Those guys read everything they wrote. They're Christians, and they're great writers. Um, Here's from The Stranger. Joel and I just shared The Stranger as well. 
This sentence is a really famous sentence, and he's talking about his mother. Um, and he's a French-Algerian, so this is translated, of course. Maman died t- today, or yesterday, maybe. I don't know. I got a telegram from the home. Mother deceased, funeral tomorrow, faithfully yours. That doesn't mean anything. Maybe it was yesterday. Isn't that interesting? See, in those words, doesn't he set something up in your mind? And you see a whole world opening up before you. <clears throat> and then the last line, and I'm sorry if this ruins the book for you, but you know, too bad everybody knows what the book is. For everything to be consummated, for me to feel less alone. You remember the title of the book is The Stranger. I had only to wish that there be a large crowd of spectators on the day of my execution and that they greet me with cries of hate. Powerful sentence. Doesn't, when you read that, don't you, don't you sort of say, how did he get there? It's marvelous. Yeah, <clears throat> so we don't want to say, I hope my shampoo works well to cleanse me like Christ cleanses my soul. Um, see, now I had that little thing in here, and now it's fallen out. And I think it's like one seventeen. Yes, wonderful. I'm so glad. So you can talk about salvation like that, or you can talk about salvation like this. Let me see if I have anything else I need to do before I read this, because I want to make sure. Okay, so study the word in theology, and for me personally, and I'm not saying you have to do it this way, but this is how I do it. I don't let myself read fiction during the day, because I love fiction so much. I love good fiction. And by the way, it doesn't have to just be the classics. Excuse me, I read all through Harry Potter. I read uh, all through The Hunger Games. I want to read what the culture is reading. Okay, I want to know... I want to know what their paradigms are. I want to be able to use what they're reading as, as analogs. So I, so I read what they're reading. Now, I'm not going to read pornography. Like, what is it? Shades of Grey. Yeah, I'm not going to read that. But I am going to read. I mean, if there's something that everybody's all abuzz about, I'm going to read it. Because I want to be able to speak to my audience. And they're reading it. Okay, so I, I personally for myself, and you do whatever you want to do, but for me, I study the word and read theology during the day. If I try to read theology at night, I'm up all night, and I'm already up all night, so I don't want to do that. Um, and then also, even if you never plan to write fiction, take an online creative writing class, which I have done. Now, the problem with that is, okay, they're never allowed to... <laughs> they don't allow anybody to critique your work, so what's the point of that? You know, and they, oh, that's so beautiful. I really loved it. You know, great, thank you. But it, it, was, a good, it was a good exercise to take and writer's workbook. So get together with some friends or something and write stories for each other. And then be honest enough to critique it and say, you know what, that, <laughs> that sentence about your shampoo and Jesus, that just doesn't work. Okay, now I'm going to read to you. What's the name of the book? This, Les Mis. Okay. Les Miserables. All right, and I'm, I, you can see. Every year, this book. It's, it's so incredibly gorgeous. It's a work of art. And he spends, he spends chapters talking about the sewers of France. And you will read them because they're so beautiful. Now, he's going to talk about Jean Valjean, who is getting saved. Now listen. It was one of those moments of blinding and yet frighteningly calm insight when the thought goes so deep that it passes beyond reality. The tangible world is no longer seen. All, we, all that we see, as though from outside, is the world of our own spirit. Thus he contemplated himself as if it were face to face, and there arose in his vision, at some mysterious depth, a sort of light resembling that of a torch. 
But as he looked more closely at this light growing in his consciousness, he saw that it had a human form and that it was the bishop. His mind's eye considered these two men now presented to him, the bishop and Jean Valjean. It's himself. Only the first could have overshadowed the second. By a singular process special to this kind of ecstasy, as his trance continued, the bishop grew and gained splendor in his eyes while Jean Valjean shrank and faded. A moment came when Valjean was no more than a shadow, and then he vanished entirely. The bishop was alone. The bishop remained alone, flooding that unhappy soul with radiance. Jean Valjean wept for a long time, sobbing convulsively with more than a woman's abandon, more than the anguish of a child. And as he wept, a new day dawned in his spirit, a day both wonderful and terrible. He saw all things with a clarity that he had never known before, his past life, his first offense and long expiation, his outward coarsening and inward hardening, his release enriched with so many plans for revenge, the incident at the bishop's house, and this last abominable act, the robbing of a child, rendered the more shameful by the fact that it followed the bishop's forgiveness. He saw all this, the picture of his life, which was horrible, and of his own soul, hideous in its ugliness. Yet a new day had now dawned for that life and soul, and he seemed to see Satan bathed in the light of paradise. How long did he stay weeping? What did he then do, and where did he go? We do not know. But it is said that on the same night, the stage driver from Grenoble, passing through the cathedral square at Digny, at three in the morning, saw in the shadows the figure of a man kneeling in an attitude of prayer outside the door of Monsieur Benevue. Okay, that, that's the story. Wasn't it beautiful? See, I mean, I, I, do you feel that? Do you feel it? That's what words can do. That's what words can do. So may God grant us grace, right? To, to write well so that people are moved. They can see and then they can be moved. In how many words there? Four paragraphs. He built an entire world and made you see what he saw. Okay, so we have five minutes now, and I will take questions. And forgive me, but no, I don't want your manuscript. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm going to cancel that. And yes, go. We're here with biblical counseling. Yeah. Where do you see the need for that right? I don't know, Jay, oftentimes, Jay Adams would say, there needs to be other people who will flesh this out in more detail. Yes. Where are the areas that you see that if we're writing, that those areas need to be addressed? Do you see anything on the horizon or any gaps? <coughs> I think that something really astonishing has happened in, it, in about the last 10 years. And what that is, is that the door for biblical counseling, for writers who are writing about biblical counseling has been swung wide open. Whereas 10 or 15 years ago, it was very difficult to get published as a biblical counselor. Now, it's much easier to get published as a biblical counselor. So, what do you think? I mean, what what are some ideas that some of you might have about what, are, are there gaps in the literature at this point? Okay. Yeah. But I haven't read any, everything. So yeah. Particularly now, I know one area that I think that I see the tide kind of moving forward uh-huh. on is the spirit, mind, body relationship and the current culture that we have with medicine. Uh huh. Um, and where to go if you want to be addressed properly. Good. Yes. Good. Okay. Good. Someone else. Yeah. Something that I'm very new to the book counseling. I just this is my first uh-huh. time. But, Welcome. Um, because of our own ministry and our own work, the cultural aspect I don't think is being addressed with a very changing demographics, very changing population, work that we do, um, uh, 
I think that's an area that has not really been looked at from a biblical perspective mm -hmm. and is not being addressed. It can be controversial, mm -hmm. but um, there's definitely biblical mandates, and mm -hmm. that's an area that I think really is would be helpful to the church as well as to those who are trying to find their way to Christ mm -hmm. with cultural constraints and, and constructs. Good. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Another question about um, what about self-publication? Because Amazon has a right. <laughs> well, here's the deal. You can do it. The problem, um, and maybe some of you know more about self-publishing than I do. In order for you to sell a book, it has to be marketed. And Amazon is wonderful as far as being a place where you can sort of get yourself there. But you, you need a couple of things, and uh, um, you, you need an editor. What, how, what do they provide? I don't even know what they give. They just let you throw your own stuff you up there. Purchase, uh, you can purchase editing, you can purchase an art, or you can take what they already have. You can get someone else to edit it that you know, um, yeah. that they print it out. And yeah. Um, I, I, I'll be honest with you, I don't know a lot about it. Um, um, but, I, but I would say... <laughs> I would say you need a professional editor. Mm -hmm. Everyone needs a professional editor. Mm -hmm. um, somebody that that's all they do. So you don't want your mama to, <laughs> to edit you. <laughs> yeah. Yes, yes, yeah, right. Well, and not, I mean, English teachers, yes, but maybe not, because English teachers might know what good literature is, but they don't, or what good grammar is, but they don't know what sells. And if the point is you have a message that you want that you think is going to give grace to people, you want to have that message packaged in such a way that people will be able to get it. So, see, that's what that's another thing of what's going on in the publishing world, is that the pub, big publishing houses, if they are still owned by Christians, which many of them are not at this point. They're, they're owned by the big secular houses. Um, they're not making very much money. There's not a lot of money there. And what that means is new writers, aren't, they're not going to take a chance on new writers generally. And, um, and you're not going to get as much money for your stuff. And, um, and then there's all these little self-publishers all over the place. So uh, the, the writing world is changing. A lot, much like the music world changed 10 years ago with the invention of digital music and iPods and all of that business. I rather doubt, and maybe I'm a dinosaur, but I rather doubt that what happened in music is going to happen with books because people like the feel of this. It's a much more tactile sort of, sort of thing. And if I have a book that I'm studying, I'm going to mark it up. I'm going to interact with it. I'm going to mark it up. I'm going to, you know. So I don't think it's going to happen like it happened with music, but it's definitely happening. And, I mean, I've got iBooks and Amazon on my, on my iPad, and I probably I have access to, like, 200 books right here. So why wouldn't I do that? So it's changing. I'm not sure I answered your question, but... CreateSpace, you can also order it to be a Kindle book. Yes. Yes. And, you know, they're missionaries, and it's a Bible study for women who need abortion healing. So yes. It was a, it was a biblical, pers uh, biblical counseling perspective, but um, it came out of a need. Yeah. Even Bible study and teaching women counseling. And see, that's a marvelous thing that's going on now. You know, I mean, on the other side of this is uh, people all over the world can read your stuff now. Uh, and you there are... Yeah. See, that's marvelous. What's going to happen, um, I hope not, but it seems to me that what will happen is we'll end up with like three or four Christian publishing houses and everything else will be subsumed by Amazon. And Amazon's ilk, you know. Um, so God will use it. Um I mean, just the thought, I know what Crossway is doing, just the thought that Crossway is now able to take the ESV study Bible and put it online and give free access, and they are also in process of translating. 
into the eight most popular languages in the world and put it online, everyone throughout the whole world will have access to the ESV Study Bible in their own language. I mean, if you have a computer. So, yes, okay. I mean, it's, you know, it's good. It's wonderful. God will use it. Um, And just really pray that the Lord helps you to write well, not badly. Um, Joel, you want to pray? Okay. Father, what a privilege it is to um, hear from a, a woman who has years and years of writing experience, writing to build your kingdom. What a privilege it is that you use weak, um, mm-hmm. broken vessels uh, to administer your grace, to build your kingdom, to pour out your love in a hurting world. Lord, it's all of our desires to give you honor and glory whether it's through writing or through speaking or blog posts or something even as trivial as tweeting and putting Mm -hmm. 140 characters out there. Mm -hmm. Um, And yet, Lord, you use means. Mm -hmm. And so we pray that you would use us in whatever way you see fit to build your kingdom for the glory of your Son. Mm -hmm. Uh, In whose name we pray. Let me just say one more thing. You should be familiar enough with the one good story that it permeates everything you say. There's only one good story. So use it. Let it permeate you. Okay. Copyright 2012, IBCD, All Rights Reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.